Well, good morning, church family. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And it's good to be together this morning around God's Word. This Sunday, location pastors at each of our locations are continuing our series through the book of Mark on following Jesus. So if you're new, my name's Nate Reed, and I serve as a location pastor here at Tyson's, and I am thrilled to dive into this text with you all this morning. But before we jump into the Word, I do want to mention a couple of things looking ahead to next Sunday as we look ahead to Easter. Palm Sunday serves as the prelude to this an incredibly important week, and it's our prayer that this would be a week that would deepen your affection for Christ as we reflect on everything that he has done on our behalf. And so to help with that, on Friday night, we are going to have a Good Friday service here in this room at 7 o'clock. I want to encourage you to, to be here with your family. It'll hopefully be a sweet time of worship and prayer, reflecting on how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for every single one of us. And I want to continue to encourage all of us to be thinking missionally, as we've been saying the last few weeks, about Easter Sunday. Continue to consider who can you invite to come with you to our Easter gatherings. We've got invite cards out in the lobby that you're welcome to take with you this week. But now next Sunday, we will be having three Easter services here in this room, one at 9, one at 11, and then we'll be adding a 1 o'clock service just for that week. We'll have children's programming during the 9 and 11 services only, uh, but want to continue to encourage you to think ahead to that, to be praying for that time. Uh, In fact, I also want to ask you to consider going to a service and serving at a service as well. Um, I'm going to throw a QR code up on the screen. We've been mentioning this the past few weeks, uh, but would love to encourage you to consider serving with either our weekend host teams, our usher and greeter team. Those that are collecting the offering in the room right now, which we're so thankful for, children's ministry, or even with our prayer team that will be praying during every single gathering, asking that the Lord would redeem folks and save them into his family. You can snap that QR code. It'll take you to a link to sign up. We'd love to have you join us even just uh, for one week. And I also want to invite you to be praying for those who picked up those Easter egg kits last week that'll be doing those egg hunts in their neighborhoods. We created over 600 of them, and by the end of the service, they were all completely gone. Uh, So you just picture 600 little outreaches taking place all over this area where there's opportunity to invite people to come uh, to Easter. So be praying for those folks this week as well. And there's one more way that I want to encourage you to be thinking missionally about this Easter, and here's how. I want to encourage you to leave a little extra space in your Easter Sunday when you're here in this building. And here's why. Like, as a service ends, before rushing out the door either to beat traffic or to head off to your dinner plans, I want you to consider turning to the person next to you or behind you and just introducing yourself to them. It's likely that they may be a first-time visitor, someone who hasn't been to the church for a while. And if they are, just take some time to get to know them and ask them what brought them here today. You might even consider inviting them to lunch in the cafe right after one of those services, which we're going to create a little bit of extra space next Sunday, so there's plenty of room for whoever wants to take advantage of that. See it as an opportunity to exercise hospitality. Now, you might be thinking, Nate, that's a little weird. Like, isn't that going to be kind of awkward just to do something like that? This is where I want to remind us that people come to a church seeking connection with others and ultimately with the Lord. And yes, it could be awkward, but we're actually even going to see in our passage today how Jesus can actually use awkward conversations in amazing ways. So I want to encourage us to embrace the awkward next week and trust that the Lord can use our hospitality to help someone not only feel welcome, but maybe even use that to impact their eternity. You might even do that for every Sunday, for that matter. I don't have to just wait till Easter. 
You might even practice that today as the service ends, which those of you, if you're new and visiting us for the first time are now thinking, okay, how do I get out of here as fast as possible? I'm just kidding. If you are a visitor, we're so glad you're here. We just want to make sure that you feel welcome and known. So speaking of awkward conversations, I'm guessing that most of you have likely found yourself in an awkward conversation at some point in your life. I certainly have. And I will confess that many of those moments were actually my fault. Uh, I, uh, my wife will confirm this to you. Rachel will tell you that uh, I grew up in a small town. And so we didn't have a lot of fancy places or a vibrant cultural scene. And so I was clueless when it came to various terms about like, like cultural terms and phrases and things like that. And so in fact, uh, early on in our marriage at our first wedding anniversary, we went to a fancy restaurant in DC to celebrate. And I was looking over the menu and I said, hey babe, what are oars devours? <laughs> to which she said, you mean hors d'oeuvres? <laughs> I didn't know, I'd I'd never seen that task before. Or I'll never forget an awkward conversation I had actually not too long ago. It was right before Mother's Day and I went to a greeting card store to get a card for my mom and for my wife. And as I walked into the store, what actually, which by the way, public service announcement, Mother's Day is less than a month away. So don't, uh, don't, don't keep ahead on that. We need to make sure that we're taking care of moms and and celebrating them in, in, in just a month here or so. But as I walked in, I saw this display of cards, and on the top of it, there was a sign that said, BOGO brand cards, an additional 50% off. To which I thought, great. Like, I'm sure my wife would really appreciate it if I saved just a little bit of money on purchasing cards for it, which I've learned since it's actually good not to skimp on things like those. But in the moment, I thought, oh, this is great. And so I walked over to that rack, and I started looking through the cards, and the brand names were on the cards. And I saw, like, Hallmark, American Greeting, Rifle Paper Company, None of these are marked BOGO. (laughs) Some of you know where this is going already. I was confused, but I wanted the discount. So I walked up to the cashier and I said, excuse me, ma'am, I saw the sign that said all BOGO brands are 50% off, but I cannot for the life of me find any of the BOGO brand cards. To which she said, oh, sir, they should be pretty clearly marked over there. I was like, I know, but I went and looked and I saw, but I did not see any cards by the BOGO brand. And she said, well, sir, they're, they're actually all BOGO. I was like, no, 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 come, come, like, come look at me, let me show you. Like, I looked, there's none of them by the BOGO brand. And she leaned over the counter and she said, sir, BOGO stands for buy one, get one. They are all BOGO brands. To which I was like, thank you very much. Bought those cards really quickly and got out of that store as fast as I could. It was awkward. And it's a mistake that I'll never make again, I assure you. And Rachel will make sure that I won't because she points it out every time we're in a store. She says, see, BOGO. (laughs) Can't get away from it. When we look at our passage for today, it's going to initially seem like a pretty awkward conversation when we read it. Which when we walk through an entire book of the Bible, we inevitably come to passages that might seem odd or even a bit awkward. And so what I want to do, I want to read this passage to us first here in just a sec, and I think you'll see what I mean. We're in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. But before I read this text, let's just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word today. I want to give you a moment between you and the Lord just to ask him to speak to you personally through this time, and I'll pray, and we'll read the text. So... Go ahead and take a moment on your own, between you and the Lord.
Father, I thank you that you've given us your word to know you, to learn about you. And I pray that as a result of our time together in this text, that you would stir our hearts and affections for you and that none of us would leave this room without being challenged or encouraged in some way in light of who you are and what you've accomplished for us. We love you. We entrust this time to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said together, amen. All right, this is Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says, and from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So it's a little awkward. Like, what in the world is taking place in this passage? It kind of seems like Jesus is acting out of character here. But I believe when we examine what's actually taking place in these verses, we're going to see an incredible picture of what it truly means to follow Jesus. And it's a picture that I think stands in stark contrast to what we saw last week in the opening verses of chapter 7. So as we're getting started, I actually do want to offer you two brief study tips uh, for when we encounter passages like this that might seem a bit obscure. And actually, these are tips that would be good for studying any passage for that matter. So you might write these down. Study tip number one, examine the context of a passage. Meaning when you come to a passage that might seem a little bit confusing, expand your, sur- your, your reading to the surrounding verses. Like what comes before the text and after the text. You may have heard this before, but like if you see the word therefore, you should always stop and ask, what is it? What is it therefore? Great. And our passage actually begins with the phrase, and from there. So a little review from last week. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, had come to Jesus and they questioned him as to why his disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders, specifically as it relates to ritual cleansing. Which, just a side note, I'm guessing some of you intentionally took more time to wash your hands this week after watching that video of David's kids last week, huh? Make sure you're getting those nails. And Jesus calls them hypocrites and exposes how they had elevated their own purposes and traditions above what God had commanded them. And David last week pointed out five dangers of empty religion that we are all prone to pursue ourselves. So if you've not had a chance to listen to that message, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it as I think it's key to understanding our passage today. And after that exchange, Jesus then comes aside with his disciples and they debrief what happened and they still don't understand what Jesus was teaching regarding the religious rulers. And Jesus tells them it's not the external practices or things that makes a person unclean, but rather the state of our heart state of our hearts, which then takes us to our passage then, starting in verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And let me show you a map, just so you can see where this is. Tyre and Sidon were located in what was then known as Phoenicia in Syria. It's part of modern-day Lebanon, about 30 miles northeast of Galilee. And oddly enough, this would be the only time in Jesus' ministry that he would actually travel outside of Jewish territory. In fact, if you see the green area on the map, that's really a good picture of where Jewish territory was. 
And you should know that this was an area that was not very well regarded by the Jews. First, because Tyre and Sidon really served as the epicenter of pagan belief and practice. In fact, you would find some of the most extreme expressions of paganism, idolatry, and pantheism in this specific area. But even further, the people from this region were regarded as one of Israel's greatest enemies, like dating back all the way to when the Assyrians had conquered Israel centuries before. And the Jews referred to the people that lived in this area as Gentiles. And there was still much lingering hostility between these two groups of people. In fact, Josephus, a, church, a Jewish historian uh, from the second century, described the people of Tyre like this. He said, they are our bitterest of enemies. So you can just sense the cultural, racial, and ethnic tension that existed between these two groups of people. Which means this wasn't a place that a Jewish person would likely go on vacation. You wouldn't find themselves going on a little holiday up to this part of the area. And yet, this is the region that Jesus takes his disciples on a road trip to. So he finds a nice Airbnb in the countryside, and as he's settling in, the locals recognize who he is, and his cover is blown, which isn't surprising because earlier in Mark chapter 3, we see that individuals from Tyre and Sidon had already heard some of Jesus' teaching in Galilee. And they likely shared about what they heard when they got home. Now, the text doesn't tell us specifically why Jesus chose to go to this place. But when we look at the context of the passage, we can see that one of the reasons would likely be to show his disciples a picture of what true religion looks like. And he would do it in a way that hopefully those disciples would never forget. I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Because you might say, well, hold, hold on a second, Nate. This passage didn't say anything about the disciples you just read to us. How are you inferring that? Well, this is where I want to give you another important Bible study tip. Study tip number two, examine parallel passages. Like we often can look to other passages of Scripture to interpret or see what's happening in a situation. These are often called cross-references. In fact, if you have a Bible open, you see those little tiny verses printed in the margin of the footnotes below, or if you're looking on a digital device, you see like a hyperlink with a, like a small number or something like that. Like these are cross-references. And specifically, when you study the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's common that multiple writers will record the same event, sometimes with additional details. And for this specific passage here in Mark, we actually see that Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, records his eyewitness account to this interaction, which is where we find that he and the other disciples were there with Jesus. So if you actually have a, a Bible with you, you might actually turn to Matthew 15. That's the book right before Mark. And keep your finger in that chapter as we're going to flip back and forth uh, between these, those, those passages just a little bit. Matthew 15. So I'm not going to go there quite yet. But, and all of this then sets the scene for this interaction that Jesus is going to have with this woman. So, Mark uh, chapter 7, verse 26 says this. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And each of those descriptors of this individual are intentional. Because from a Jewish perspective, this woman had everything going against her in approaching Jesus. Like, first, she was a woman. Culturally speaking at this time, it was completely unacceptable for a Gentile woman to approach a Jewish rabbi. Second, she was a Gentile. We've already highlighted the existing hostility that already existed between Jews and Gentiles, but even further, the Gentiles were viewed by Jews as innately unclean and untouchable simply because they were Gentiles, which only contributed to the tension felt between these two groups of people. 
Third, it says that she was Syrophoenician by birth, meaning that she was of Syrian descent from the land of Phoenicia, a true ancestor of one of Israel's greatest enemies. And then finally, if you flip over to Matthew's account in Matthew 15, 22, he describes her as a Canaanite woman from that region, pagan to the core, like an idol worshiper from the pagan capital of the Eastern world. So never mind about Bruno, we don't talk about Syrophoenician lady in this. <laughs> Song's so catchy, isn't it? Especially when your kids want to hear it over and over and over and over. Like this encounter was simply unthinkable in that day. A Gentile Syrophoenician pagan woman falls at the feet of a Jewish rabbi, begging that he would save her daughter from the severe oppression of a demon. It's a picture of true desperation. And then the awkward dialogue begins. And I want you to hear how Matthew describes their conversation. So Matthew 15, verse 22 and 23 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then listen to this. It says, But he did not answer her a word. Silence. Like, it seems as if Jesus like, completely ignores her. Jesus, why are you being so rude to this woman in this moment? Did you not hear what she said? Well, continuing in verse 23 then, his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. The New American Standard actually reads it this way. It says, she is shouting behind us. So she's persistent in her pleading to them and the disciples turn their backs on her. She comes back to Jesus with one final plea and you can just hear the desperation in her words. It's all she can say at this point in Matthew 15, verse 25. She just says, Lord, help me. And we pick the exchange back up in Mark, uh, uh, verse 27, and Jesus speaks to her and he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To which I'm guessing his disciples at this point probably responded with a rousing, amen. You tell her, Jesus, she doesn't deserve that. And while this sounds like an insult, I think Jesus is actually speaking a brief parable to the woman meant to summarize the purpose of his mission. And he does so in using three different metaphors. We see him use the metaphor of children, bread, and dogs. So first, he mentions the children, which was a metaphor for the Jews. So in this statement, Jesus is just merely confirming the priority of his mission. Matthew makes this even clear because he defines children in his passage. In verse uh, 24, he defines them as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's the children, the Jews. Second, Jesus mentions bread, which was a metaphor for the Messiah's blessing. It's an ongoing metaphor that Jesus has already started to develop with the disciples, uh, actually starting with the feeding of the 5,000. It was meant to show them that Jesus himself was the very blessing that they were searching for. And he'll continue to use this bread metaphor in the chapters to follow, and the disciples will still not understand what he means. He'll actually rebuke them for it in just a few verses. And then third, he uses the term dogs, which was a term that was commonly used by the Jews, Jews to describe the Gentiles. And this is not the type of dog that you and I might picture today, like a happy little pet puppy or something, but like wild animals. Like if you've ever been overseas before, you've seen dogs like these roaming the streets, stray scavengers that eat filth and trash. They're not safe, certainly not welcome in homes. 
And so this was a term that was absolutely demeaning when used, which makes you, makes you wonder, is Jesus insulting this woman? Is he actually insulting her? Now, it's true, when you actually look at the words that Jesus used, he actually uses a little bit of softer language here. Like when you look at the original term in Greek, there's actually two forms for the word dog, one of which translates to the mangy, strange dogs that is described earlier, but there's another one that refers to a small dog that could be kept in the house as a pet. And that's the form that Jesus uses here. To which you might think, oh, well, that's really cute, Jesus. And just call her a pet. But even with softer language, this is still not a compliment. Like, if I call you a golden doodle or a pit bull, I'm still calling you a dog. Like, it still stings. So why would Jesus choose to use a term like this? Well, think back what I asked you to remember. Do you remember one of the reasons that we said Jesus likely made this journey? It was to show his disciples a picture of what true religion looks like, which again would be in stark contrast to what they had just witnessed with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's intentionally using this term in a parable to illustrate the attitude held by the Jews as well as his disciples in this moment towards the Gentiles. In fact, I really wish we could have seen where Jesus was looking in this instance. I think it's possible that as he's speaking, as this woman's speaking to her, Jesus isn't looking directly at her, but he's looking at his disciples, waiting to see how they'll respond to this. Waiting to see how they'll respond. Now, would the woman see it this way? Like, you would expect her response to be one of hurt, disrespect, and like offense. Like, how dare you call me a dog, Jesus? Like, I'm out of here. That's not her response at all. In fact, her answer shows that she actually understands the parable. Look at this. Because this is where you see that Jesus was not actually insulting the woman, but testing her faith. When you look really closely at Jesus' response, he actually gives her an open doorway to understand the parable, and she sees it, and she runs right through it. Look again at verse 27, where we're going to find the most important word, I think, in this entire sentence. Mark 7, 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed. What? First. She hears that word, and hears it as a glimmer of hope. It's like she says, so you're saying there's a chance. And then she gives one of the most profound answers in the book of Mark. Like, rather than responding into disgust, she agrees with him. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. She says, you're right. I'm just a dog. I am not deserving. I know I'm not a child of the promise, but you're the only hope that I have. She says it, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says, Jesus, I'll just take the crumbs if that's all I can get, because it'll be enough. Just give it to me. And with these words, she becomes the first person in the entire book of Mark to understand one of Jesus' parables. First person. She affirms that while Jesus did come primarily for the Jews, his blessing was meant to overflow from the Jews to people from all nations. I wish we had more time to build out this truth. You've heard us talk about this in many months prior, but the Old Testament made it clear over and over that the blessing of God would be given to the Jews, not so that they would just keep it to themselves, but that, so that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And you see this all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abraham that through his descendants, which would be the Jews, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, we don't know how familiar this woman was with the Old Testament scriptures, 
But through this exchange, she absolutely discerns that the blessing of God, while primarily for the Jews, was also available to her. And she says, whatever you give me, Lord, I will gladly accept, even if it's just a crumb. I don't need a seat at the table. I just need you. And how does Jesus respond? Well, as she's saying these things, I can almost picture Jesus. He's been looking at his disciples, and when this woman responds, he looks back at her with the most warm and genuine smile. He says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He says, woman, you're exactly right. And you even hear his tender heart in, in Matthew's account, Matthew 15, 28. He says, oh, woman, your faith is great. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say that about you? Your faith is great. And she heads home, finds her daughter lying in bed, peacefully resting, no longer oppressed by an unclean spirit. Now, I know that's a lot of explanation for just seven verses, but I hope you're starting to see the picture of what Jesus was wanting his disciples to see here. The religious rulers in the heart of Jerusalem had totally missed the point. This woman nailed it, totally got it. And think about how encouraging this would have been to Mark's original audience. If you remember, Mark was writing this, his letter to a group of Gentile believers in Rome. And as they heard this account, they would have been overjoyed that Jesus doesn't just reward Jewish faith, but Gentile faith as well. Like it shows them it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what you have done, the blessing of Jesus is available to you. And then coming back to the context of this passage, I now want you to see the comparison that Mark is making between this woman and the religious ruler leaders that we looked at last week. And here's how we're going to do that. In comparison to the five dangers of empty religion that David presented last week, I want to show you four marks of great faith as evidenced by the Syrophoenician woman. And these marks have implications for every single person listening in today, whether you've been following Jesus for decades or if you're just in the room exploring Christianity. This is going to show you what the core message of the Bible is all about. So here's the first mark. You might write these down as well. Number one, great faith is marked by repentance. Great faith is marked by repentance, which simply means turning from the ways of the world to follow Jesus and his commands. And here's how we see this with this woman. If someone from Phoenicia needed healing, the custom at this time was to travel to what was known as the Temple of Eshmin in Sidon. Let me show you a picture because these ruins actually still exist today. They're still standing. And Eshmin was the Phoenician god of healing and renewed life. He was one of the most important divinities in the whole Phoenician pantheon. And his temple was actually built next to a natural spring that was believed to have special healing power. So if you and your, or someone in your family were sick or oppressed, this is where you would go. And had this woman said to her neighbor or a friend of hers, like, I'm going to go seek out a Jewish rabbi, that would have been a very awkward conversation. You don't go there. You go to the temple if you have a need like this. But she doesn't go to the temple. She does the exact opposite. She turns from the traditions of her past and submits herself to Jesus instead. And this is what's known as repentance, literally turning from our sin and pursuing that which is honoring to God according to his word, which is what the religious leaders from last week were not willing to do. While the religious leaders elevated their thoughts and traditions above God's word, this woman elevated Jesus over tradition. Like they were not willing to let go of their own self-serving traditions, but this woman was willing to leave it all behind. Now, it's true. We don't know what this woman's life looked like after this event took place. 
but we can only assume that her transformation was genuine because Jesus affirms it as such. He says, you have great faith. The same thing holds true for us today, turning from our sin and following what Jesus tells us is good. We saw this actually in our Bible reading this morning in Proverbs 23, verse 13, or 28, 13, which says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So following Jesus is marked by a willingness to turn from our old sinful ways and to turn from all that was contrary to God's word and follow Jesus with our entire lives. Great faith is marked by repentance. Number two, Great faith is marked by spiritual affection. Spiritual affection, which is a term David defined for us last week as spiritual fear and awe before God's greatness. Spiritual gratitude and thanksgiving for God's grace. Spiritual hope and strength in God's promises, which were attitudes that the religious leaders were not willing to hold towards Jesus. But not so with this woman. Like, while they perform religious action apart from spiritual affection for God, she is marked by true spiritual affection for Jesus. And we see this even in the posture that she takes before Jesus. She falls on her face at his feet in reverence and fear of who he is. We even see from the titles that she ascribes to him uh, that she believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the coming king from David's line. Look back at the account in Matthew, verse 12, chapter 15, verse 22. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She had hope that Jesus alone had the power to bring about the healing that her da- daughter so desperately needed as the prom- promised king. So this is instructive for us too today. Because spiritual affection is not just knowing things about Jesus or accepting them, but allowing that understanding to change us. It's expressed in approaching Jesus with reverence and awe. It translates into thanksgiving and gratitude for what he has done. And it wells up into joy and adoration for who he is and what he has done. In fact, one indicator, you could ask yourself this if you're trying to measure, well not measure, but assess our level of faith. I'd ask you to think about this question. Do you love and adore Jesus? Like, do you desire him above all things? And is that adoration consistent regardless of your circumstances? Great faith is marked by spiritual affection. Number three, great faith is also marked by humility. Humility. The recognition that we are needy people and that God alone can meet our needs. In fact, genuine faith abandons our pride, which says, I can do this on my own, and instead calls out for mercy, recognizing that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. The religious leaders, unwilling to let go of their pride. They refused to see themselves as unclean, and they thought that their traditions and their efforts to keep the law would be enough. But this woman, on the other hand, accepted that she was undeserving of Jesus' mercy. She doesn't fight him when he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. She says, yes, Lord, you're absolutely right. I have nothing to offer you. I need you and you alone. And this is key to what true faith in Jesus looks like. It involves the humble admission that none of us, none of us, none of us deserve God's grace. Like we all need Jesus and we need him because every single one of us, because of our sin, have been separated from God. 
And so if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to listen closely because this is the central message of the entire Bible, that we have all rejected God by choosing our ways instead of his. We've rebelled against God. And rebellion against the infinite and supreme ruler of all things makes us fully deserving of his wrath. And that wrath culminates in being separated from him for all of eternity. And we can't save ourselves from that reality. Like despite what this world tells us, there is no amount of good that can erase the infinite guilt that we have against an infinite God. All we can do is humbly submit ourselves to Jesus and cry out for mercy, which leads us to the final mark. Number four, great faith is marked by trust. It's marked by trust. By taking God completely at his word and resting our entire lives on his promises. In fact, that's actually what trust or faith means. Trust. That's exactly what that word means. Which we often see modeled so well with our kids at times. It's like something uh, Rachel and I just witnessed with our two-year-old son just this past week. For the first time, he's now learned that he can jump off of things. Which is pretty awesome. And it's also a problem. And thankfully, he's still a bit hesitant to jump if we're not there to catch him. But if he sees mommy and daddy standing there with their arms open, open wide, he has no problem jumping off that table into our arms to catch up because he knows that we'll catch him. And this is the kind of trust that God wants us to have regarding his promises. And the religious leaders, too prideful to place their full dependence on Jesus. They thought they could make themselves clean. And their dependence was on who? Themselves. But this woman recognized that only Jesus could meet her greatest need. Now, in that moment, the greatest need in her mind was actually probably her daughter's healing, which is certainly significant, certainly an important thing. But whether she realized it or not, that actually wasn't her greatest need, nor was it the greatest miracle that actually takes place in this story. It's easy to miss this detail, but when Jesus responds to her and tells her that her daughter has been healed, she trusts him completely. How do we know that? She leaves alone by herself. She doesn't say, hey, that's a really good word, Jesus. Can you come home with me just to make sure? Like, I, wanna, I, I really need to make sure that my daughter's healed. Like, could you give me a sign or show me something just to let me know? She takes Jesus completely at his word. And in that moment, when Jesus tells her that she has great faith, she goes from being an undeserving dog to a child welcome to feast at his table. Amen. Trust is central to great faith. And it's the answer to our greatest need. So it makes Palm Sunday so significant, Good Friday so good, and Easter Sunday so overwhelming that while every single one of us were powerless to save ourselves, God did everything necessary for us. Sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life. And on Palm Sunday, he would humbly ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, where those who had rejected him would eventually kill him on a cross. And he would willingly die in our place, taking on the full punishment that every single one of us deserved. But then, and this is what we're going to erupt in celebration over next Sunday, and should celebrate every day for that matter, Jesus rose from the dead three days later and declared that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in his free gift of salvation will be freed from his wrath to become his adopted children, and to be able to come and sit and feast at his table. 
Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the same word for Gentile. Not because we deserve it, but because he has made it available to us. That's what it means to trust in Jesus, crying out for the mercy that he is so willingly and graciously able to provide which is where I want to urge anyone, whether in this room or in the sound of my voice, who have not yet trusted in Jesus to do so today. Don't wait on this, as there is going to be a time when it will be too late to receive his grace. And if you have trusted in Jesus, considering the example of this woman, I want to ask you this question. Would you also be described as having great faith? And this is what I want us to consider as we close because I think far too many of us might say, yes, I have faith. But in reality, that faith might not necessarily be characterized by repentance, affection, humility, and trust. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. You may have heard this illustration before, kind of using a stool to talk about faith. You know, if I want to trust the stool, it's not enough for me just to know and agree that this is a stool. If I trust the stool, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit on it. It's the same thing about faith. It's not enough to know something about Jesus or agree that, it, that it's true. If I'm going to trust in him, I'm going to put my full weight in Jesus. And sit on that. But what I think we're often prone to do is not rest our full weight on that stool. When it comes to circumstances in our lives, we don't want to sit on it, but we just want to lean on it a little bit. I've got a big test coming up. Jesus, I need your help. You know, I've got a job interview coming up soon. Jesus, can you give me some help with that? Or I've got a pretty big doctor's appointment coming up soon. Lord, I, I really need your help. And we're not resting our entire weight on it, but we're just leaning into it. For some of us, we just might like to pick up that stool and kind of walk around with it a little bit, you know, different times. So Sunday, Christian, I'm going to pick up my faith. See? It's my faith. Monday rolls around, and there's commands, promises of God that we don't want to follow. I'm just going to leave that there for now. But I'll come back to it this time. What would it look like to rest our entire weight in everything in our lives and trusting in Jesus? It's marked by repenting of the things that are contrary to his word. It's marked by spiritual affection for Jesus, just falling in love with him, recognizing what he's done for us out of love. It's marked by humility, recognizing I have to depend on you, Jesus. I'm completely resting on you. Trust. Trust you're going to hold me up, Lord. What would it look like to live a life that is based on great faith? I'll ask one more thing, too. Recognizing that Easter is next week. Sometimes showing great faith includes a willingness to have awkward conversations with others to share this good news. We saw in this passage that no one is too far gone to receive God's grace. It's such good news. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, God's grace is available to you. And if Jesus was willing to travel to the most unthinkable place in order to extend his mercy, 
then we should be willing to follow his example, even to simple places like our neighborhood, workplace, school, those the Lord who has placed in our circles. So who can you invite next week to hear the greatest news of all time? Or for that matter, who can you pursue this week to share the greatest news of all time? Those two questions in mind, would you bow and pray with me as we prepare to close? Lord Jesus, I want to pray for anyone here today who might not have taken that step to place their full weight in you. God, I pray that they would see that you welcome them with open arms no matter what their lives have looked like to this point, and you offer them grace that overflows into an eternity to be able to be spent with you. God, may every single person today just be overwhelmed at your goodness and your mercy towards us. And for those that have never taken that step, God, help them to take that step. Be willing to trust you and place the full weight of their lives on the promises and what you have accomplished for us in the gospel. And for those of us that have trusted you, Lord, I pray that you would help us even this week to take steps towards what it looks like to have great faith. So much of this only can come from you, Lord. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen us, show us what that looks like, and enable us to rest in you no matter what our circumstances look like, knowing that you are the only one who can bear the full weight of the burdens that we face, including the weight of our sin. God, may we evidence great faith in big ways this week. And as we look ahead to Easter next Sunday, God, we pray that you would save many. As people flood into churches in our city and around the world that maybe haven't been there for a while, that they would hear and understand the goodness and the urgency of your good news, and they would turn from their sin and trust in you and use us as part of that process, Lord. Give us boldness and courage to have awkward conversations this week, Lord, if that's what it ends up being, recognizing that you can use that to lead to eternal transformation. Father, we love you. Thank you for the example we get to see from this woman in this text. And I pray that every single one of us one day would be able to stand before you when we would hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. You showed great faith. We love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.